Okay, um, I missed out on uh, a couple of welcomes. We have um, Elizabeth and Eric at the back there. Nice to see you guys. Hello. Welcome. And uh, James, they're all on the same road. They're gathering together over there. James is here again, which is great to see him. Um, just uh, so that you know, guys, feel free to help yourself to uh, drinks or the bathrooms are at the back there if you need them. And should we need an emergency exit, they're here, here, and here. Um, and you're more than welcome. We'd love you to stay and have uh, and eat with us. Uh, there's food provided afterwards um, for everybody. So, uh, yeah, please stay and be part of that. That'd be wonderful. Okay, I'd like to invite Phil to come up. And I'd like John to come and pray for him. Oh, John, uh, John Biddle. Lord, we just uh, thank you for Phil. Thank you for the wisdom that you've given him. Thank you for how uh, you've given him understanding of the scripture, God. And we come um, just open-hearted, God, uh, just willing to hear you, God. All the way through the Bible, we hear people have choices to to either um, follow you or not to not follow you, God. And, and we just uh, have that choice this morning to to stand here open-hearted and to receive from you, God, and from what you've given Phil, God. And so we choose that today, God. Um, we just leave what kind of a week we've had, God, and I just pray for Phil, God, with whatever week he's had, God, I just pray, Lord, that you will speak through him and that you will speak to us through him, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I should do it. I'll just kind of signal to you or something when we when we need to swap through this. So something I've noticed as as I read through the Bible is this that um during Jesus' ministry Christy? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> people were constantly amazed at Jesus. Um, I read somewhere that there are 32 occasions in the Gospels where it actually says, Jesus said that and people were amazed. Jesus did that and people were amazed. Jesus displayed this and people were amazed. Next. What were they amazed by? That They were amazed by his teaching. Um, they were amazed by his miracles. And they were amazed by his authority. And the three often went together. It says um, they were amazed because Jesus taught. He taught not as the teachers of the law taught. He taught with authority. Um, they were amazed when he, he drove out demons, healed the sick, raised the dead. And he seemed to do it just by speaking the word, and these things happened. They were amazed at his authority. Um, Jesus, on the other hand, is only ever recorded as being amazed twice in the whole of the Gospels. Um, the first occasion, not hugely impressive, um, he was amazed once by lack of faith. Um, this was the people in his hometown, the place where he'd come from. Um, and they were saying, isn't this, isn't this just the carpenter's son? Don't we know him? Don't we know his parents? Who do we think he is? And he, he says he, they had so little faith that he could only perform a few miracles. Uh, as a result, w wouldn't, wouldn't it be fantastic to be in a situation where there was so little faith around that we only saw a few miracles? <laughs> I, I could probably live with that. Jesus couldn't live with that. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Um, 
The other time Jesus was amazed was by this guy. Um, so who is this who was the only person to successfully amaze Jesus in a positive way in the whole of the time of his life and ministry on earth? Well, he was a Roman centurion. Um, that means that he was a military leader. So the kind of clues in the name, just as we get our word century from um, 100, you know, 100 years, uh, 100 cricket score. Um, not that one yet. Can you go backwards on that? Yeah. Right. Um, Oh, no, it's come up on mine, not yours. It's really confusing. What mine shows isn't what yours shows. But anyway, um, yeah, so he, he was a military leader. Typically, a, a centurion would be over 100 people, um, hence the name. But um, so, some of their squads were big, some, but they, they were quite important. It was like the rank of captain in a modern army, that sort of thing. And um, as far as the people of, of Israel were concerned, the Romans were the invaders. They had come, they had occupied their land, so th they weren't desperately popular. And... Um, to add insult to injury, um, he, he also, he was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew, so the, the, the people of Jesus' age would have regarded them as unclean, that they wouldn't spend time with them, they wouldn't go into their homes or their houses. And in fact, um, overall, a Roman centurion is basically the person who the Messiah is supposed to get rid of. If we go right back and think about the promises that God gave to Abraham, and Jesus' generation saw themselves as the heir of these promises, um, what were they promised? We, we all did the God story teaching last year. What are the three promises to Abraham? Land, yep. Descendants. So, so this guy's come, he's invaded their land, so he's taken away that aspect of the promise. Um, he is not a descendant of Abraham, so he's not an heir of the promise. And certainly when they looked around at the Roman occupation, they were seeing scant signs of blessing. Um, so... He seems to represent everything the Messiah is supposed to get rid of. So, so what's going on here, and how did he manage to amaze Jesus in a positive way? So let's have a look at the story. Um, so this is Luke 7, verses 1 to 10. When Jesus had finished saying, to, saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, who his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Just stop that falling over. So, interestingly, the, the elders of the Jews said, this man deserves to have you do this. This was obviously no ordinary centurion. Um, they said he loves our nation. He's built our synagogue. Somehow he got it. He's what the Bible sometimes referred to as a God-fearer. But he himself didn't see, him as a, didn't see himself as a deserving case at all. In fact, he said, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I don't even deserve to have you come under my roof. So the leaders of the Jews thought he deserved it based on his actions, and yet he didn't see himself as deserving at all. How did he see himself? That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And I say to that one, come, 
and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowds following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. So the servant was healed, and he was healed without Jesus even going, even laying hands on him, even doing anything like this. And Jesus said he was amazed at this guy's faith. So, so what was it that the centurion had grasped that somehow amazed Jesus? He'd worked out three things. First of all, he as a Roman centurion knew that he was in a hierarchy of the Roman Empire that ultimately went right back to the emperor, who was the source of all authority in the, in, in the Roman Empire. So although he was a powerful man, he had authority in the circumstance that he was in, he knew that his power didn't come from himself. It wasn't that he was a great leader. It wasn't that he was a man who had kind of charisma and presence and could command others. It wasn't even because he was violent and people were fearful of him. He might have been all of those things for all we know. But the fact is, he knew that his authority ultimately came from someone above himself. There was somebody called a legate who was in command of the legion that he was in. The legate reported back to the Roman commanders, and ultimately they reported back to the Roman emperor. So he knew his authority came from above himself. He also recognized this, that Jesus had greater authority than he did. He wasn't stupid. He'd seen what was going on. He'd seen the miracles that Jesus was performing. Otherwise, why would he have asked him to heal his servant? <laughs> So he recognized that Jesus had greater authority than he did. And therefore, he worked out, if Jesus has greater authority than I have got, then Jesus must serve a greater authority than I serve. So here's a man who is, if you like, a, a representative of the most powerful empire on the face of the earth, the most powerful empire the earth had ever seen, in fact, at that point. And yet he sees in Jesus somebody who serves a greater authority and yet has a greater authority. Authority, And not only that, having recognized those things, rather than seeing that as a threat or an abstract theological concept or anything like that, he then places his faith in Jesus and says, will you come and perform this miraculous act? Will you heal my servant who is on the verge of death, who no one else can heal? So he's actually willing almost to put himself under Jesus' authority and ask, will you come and do this for me. And Jesus says that he is amazed at the centurion's faith. And in fact, what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying that faith and authority are inseparably related in the kingdom of God. I'm, I'm going to read you this passage. This passage kind of gets me every time. It really challenges me. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed... You can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, how much authority do you need to be exercising in order to speak to a mountain, whether it's an actual physical mountain, or for that matter, whether it's something that, you know, metaphorically that feels like a mountain, so big and large and impossible in your life or your circumstances around you, there's, feel, there's no way that could ever move. There is no way that could ever change. That ain't going anywhere. It's millions of tons of rock, and I can't move it. And Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a tiny mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, be moved from here to there. Some of the other gospel writers record Jesus as saying, you can say to that mountain, be cast into the sea, and it will move. Nothing 
will be impossible for you. Now that, that verse kind of gets me every time because I want that kind of faith. I want that kind of spiritual authority. You know, Jesus isn't saying this to some special class of sort of super spiritual followers that I can never attain to be, that you can never attain to be, that we can never attain to me. Um, he's, he's saying this to anyone who follows him. There's loads of other scriptures in the same vein as well. You know, if you have faith in me, then, you know, in other places, Jesus says, anything you ask in my name, it will be done for you. Um, Jesus points towards the incredible acts that he's been doing. And he says, you'll do even greater things than these if you ask in my name. Something niggles me about this. There's, there's something not quite right somewhere. Because if I'm, if I'm really honest, if I'm truthful, I'm not really seeing that kind of authority in my life day to day. I'm not coming in that place of faith that goes to a mountain and fully expects that if I say to it, move from here to there, if I say to a circumstance, whether it's a circumstance of physical health or healing, or whether it's a circumstance of a mental situation, or whether it's a circumstance of practical circumstances in someone's life, or whether it's a spiritual stronghold, or whatever it is, if I say to it, move from here to there, be fundamentally changed, let the situation after this word of authority has been spoken be different to the situation before it was spoken, I am not in truth seeing that as a day-to-day -day aspect of my experience in Christ. I'm not saying I've never seen it, but I don't feel it really characterizes my my walk in God day to day. And I'm not willing to settle for that. I'm, I'm not happy. I, I once heard someone say, I, I don't want to be the kind of Christian who could go through a day and be satisfied without seeing a miracle, without seeing some kind of experience of, of God's power turning up and changing things. Because to be honest, if that isn't happening, my faith might as well just be in my head. It might as well just be kind of mindfulness or well-being or all these other kind of decaffeinated spiritualities that are around these days. You know, because actually all they're saying is the only thing that changes is inside your head. It is vitally important that my faith in Jesus changes what's inside my head, all right? Because, you know, it says be transformed by the renewing of your mind in the Bible. So if, if my faith in Jesus doesn't change what's going on in my head, then it is less than the faith that Jesus is calling me to have. If it doesn't change what's going on in my heart, then it's less than the faith that Jesus is calling me to have. But absolutely, according to these scriptures and according to most of the rest of the gospel when you read it, unless it also changes things in the world around me, in people's situations, in the circumstances of life, unless we see those acts of power and authority that demonstrate the gospel, then again, it is not the whole of the faith that Jesus is calling me to have. And in fact, that by his grace, he wants and is able to give to me. So I, I want that kind of faith. I want that kind of spiritual authority. You know, when I read the gospel, I, when it really boils down, I see two things in there that will be the distinguishing marks that will enable you to tell that someone is a disciple of Jesus. One of them is love. So by this shall all people know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. You know, it clearly says that. So if the love of Christ is not demonstrated amongst us and around us, then how will people know that we are disciples of Jesus?
But there are so many verses that say things like this. You know, the things that I've done, you'll do even greater things. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be moved from here to there and it will move. So love and authority, I would fully expect to be the two key distinguishing marks of a disciple of Jesus. And if I'm not seeing both of those things in full-on expression in my life, then somehow I'm living less than the life of faith, the life of discipleship that Jesus has called me to. And I'm not willing to settle for half measures anymore. I have bet my life on this. I have staked my life on this to be true, that Jesus is Lord. Jesus was born. Jesus lived. Jesus died, died on the cross in order to sweep away my sin and restore me to a kingdom life, a life of, of abundance, a life of kingdom power and authority that will enable me to live in the way that he's called me to live. I've staked my life on that. And I'm, I'm not willing anymore to accept half measures on it. And incidentally, if the authority thing is this difficult and this crunchy, and we can look at ourselves sometimes and say, I am not moving in the authority that that centurion knew and that he recognized in Jesus and saw as a distinguishing mark of the kingdom, then maybe the love thing's that difficult as well. And maybe some of what we say is, by this should all people know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. Actually, maybe we're just being fairly nice. And what if love's as radically transformative as this as well? I'm just going to leave that thought. We're focusing on the authority side of it today. But um, I want that kind of faith that Jesus saw in that centurion, who recognized that Jesus was a man under authority and therefore acted in authority. And I, I want to act in that same kind of spiritual authority. So what the centurion had recognized is this. The key to exercising spiritual authority in this way is to be submitted to Jesus' authority, because we then pray and act in his name. The centurion knew that for all of the power he had, I mean, with some exceptions, he had the power of life and death. He could execute people. He could command his hundred soldiers to do this or that, and they would do it. Um, but he only had that because of the authority of Rome that he was under. And he saw that Jesus had authority to heal the sick, work miracles, drive out demons, raise the dead. And he got that Jesus only had that because he was under a higher authority. You know, the authority of his Father in heaven. And the key for us exercising that kind of spiritual authority is to be submitted to authority in the same way that Jesus was. We then pray and act in his name. And... You know, here's another one of those verses that I spoke about that gets me every time. Whoever believes in me, not a few who believe in me, not the odd person who believes in me, whoever believes in me will do, not might do or could do, whoever will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these. So whoever, all of us, will do, not might do, all that Jesus has been doing, and greater things than that as well. So come on. Come on, look, this, this, isn't, this isn't a promise. Jesus isn't beating around the bush. This isn't some parable you have to interpret. This is pretty plain and blunt, all right, because I am going to the Father. Jesus is being elevated to that position of authority, and therefore everybody who follows him, once he has gone to the Father, which has now happened, by the way, that's what that whole ascension thing was about, um, will now be under Jesus' authority in exactly the same way that centurion was under the authority of Rome and therefore will be able to exercise. That's why Jesus says they will do even greater things than these. Not will somehow be higher than Jesus, but just three years. He didn't have time to do every single miracle you could possibly conceive of. But his followers, once he has been raised to the right hand of the Father and we are submitted under that authority because of the position that Jesus has attained, 
will do everything that Jesus does, the full three years' worth, and even greater things than that as well. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Son willingly submitted to the Father, us willingly submitted to the Son. That chain of authority flowing. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Again, that verse just gets me. I sometimes... I read this and sometimes I'm utterly inspired and I think, wow, that's the life that I called to. That's the life that I have because Jesus has died and Jesus is risen and Jesus will come again. And other times it almost makes me feel like giving up. Do you feel like that? Because I think you may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. And I ask for stuff and it doesn't happen. And the stuff I don't ask for because I kind of feel, how could I even ask for that? And yet, there's this incredible encouragement here, and it's almost like a commandment, isn't it? It's not, it's not saying, oh, kind of raise your game a little bit. It's, it's kind of like this, this glorious, grace-filled promise that kind of floods out of Jesus. And it says, I'm, I submit myself to the Father. I'm going to be raised to the right hand of the Father. You're going to be my disciples. That chain of authority will flow, and you will do everything I can do. So let's try and get an example. Let's work out how, how, how can this possibly work. So th- th- this, is a, this is a former colleague of mine. It's a lady called Jennifer Anderson. Um, I used to work with her in the foreign office. We were doing, it's quite a few years ago now, I was, we were doing project management. It was business change to do with installing their new computer system overseas. And she was kind of like the sort of the diplomat who was in charge of running that side of it. And it, it was really good fun. We had to travel around loads of different embassies around the world, um, going sort of seeing how they worked, how this was going to change, how they worked, that kind of thing. So that was the job that she did. And then one day she came into the office and said, you know, this project's nearly over and I'm moving on. I've got my next job. They tend to rotate them every three years. In her next job, her title changed a little bit. And she, she, was, ne- she was going to become Her Excellency, Jennifer. I've actually met somebody who is actually called Her Excellency, all right? Uh, wouldn't you just love to be an excellency? I mean, that'd be excellent, wouldn't it? So she... Um, she, she'd gone to be Her Excellency Jennifer Anderson, the British ob- ambassador to Botswana. Um, she wasn't technically going to be called D- Diplomatic Trivia. What was she actually going to be called? No, Commonwealth Country. She's going to be a high commissioner. A bit of Diplomatic Trivia there. But anyway, she, she still has the diplomatic rank of an ambassador, all right? So she, I'm going to carry on calling her an ambassador. Um, and here's how it worked. So she's, she goes from sitting in an office, being a project manager, to arriving in Botswana... Um, And suddenly, she is treated completely differently. Everybody refers to her as your excellency. Um, How can that suddenly be? She's still the same person, all right? But yet, she goes there under the authority of the queen. She goes there as the representative of the British government. She goes there carrying the full force of all that, the, all that the, the British nation brings. You know, we're still about the sixth largest economy in the world. Um, we have one of the world's largest and most internationally capable militaries. Um, we have massive economic power. We have loads of soft power in the world. Um, you know, our role in the world is changing, but we're still up there okay. And the fact is, she as one woman goes carrying all of that authority. So she doesn't come in her own name. She doesn't come as Jennifer Anderson. She is Her Excellency because all of this stuff is sitting above her. And the Bible actually says that we are going to be ambassadors, doesn't it? It calls us ambassadors of reconciliation, sort of re- reconciling God to humankind. That, that, that's what the Bible describes us. So it, it says we are going to be ambassadors and Once you're an ambassador, you have the authority 
of the king, the authority of the queen. All of the power of their kingdom is yours to exercise and deploy because that's what you are. You're that representative. So if you want to kind of get what, what was this being under authority and therefore exercising authority bit that the centurion got, it's kind of that. We're ambassadors. And um, here's a picture of her with Harry when he was still a senior royal. Um, a bit topical there. Um, being introduced to somebody very important. One, so two things I love about this picture. One, suddenly she goes catapulted from the back office to, um, to sort of introducing royalty to senior figures of the government. The, the other is this. Isn't that Holly Anderson serving wine in a Union Jack <laughs> apron? <laughs> yeah, she just had a haircut. You got to say, she got a very nice haircut yesterday. But just before the haircut, that could have been like a... Yeah, anyway, I just thought that. Okay, so I'm starting to make this sound easy, which is great, because it's supposed to be. Grace isn't supposed to be difficult. Um, you know, one of the, the things I love about the gospel, one of the things I love about the Bible, is that the, the deeper scholar, the, you know, somebody who's got even more degrees than Chloe Lee, um, you know, the... Um, the, 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 the sort of highest um, intellectual can spend the whole of their life trying to grapple with and understand these things and yet get to the bottom. And yet, you know, Jesus says, you know, I, I thank you, Father, because you, you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and you revealed them to the simple. The, there is a revelation that it should be simple. If it requires incredible comprehension and incredible learning, then it's probably not the gospel. It's probably something that human, human beings have dressed up to make it sound inaccessible. But nonetheless, if that's the kind of mind that God has given you, you can engage those God-given mental faculties with it for the whole of your life and get richer and richer and deeper and deeper. And I love it when people with that incredible intellect bring it out and communicate it in a way that the simplest can understand because that's how the gospel is supposed to work. Okay, so, so it, it kind of, it's kind of simple. The centurions grasped a simple point. But So how do I actually do it? How do I go away from here this afternoon and do something different to what we were doing before that somehow means I am putting myself so much under Jesus' authority that his authority will start to flow in my life in the way that I hope for, in the way that I long for, in the way that I'm not satisfied unless I start seeing. So, so maybe a good place to be, would be to start with Jesus. How did Jesus submit to his father's will? Because he was very clearly submitted to that authority and he very clearly moved in that authority. So Jesus clearly submitted to God's word. Do you remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? So he, um, he, he goes into the wilderness, he, 40 days, 40 nights, he's hungry, he's tired, it's hot, um, he's in a desert place, he's away from people. And the, the devil comes and starts to tempt him with these temptations, doesn't he? And what does Jesus do to stand against these temptations? He, he doesn't stand on the fact that, oh, I'm the son of God, you know, get away from me, I'm more important than you are. He doesn't... Um, he doesn't try and come up with some clever logic or some clever reasoning. He simply quotes God's word in response. And in fact, all, all the bits of God's word he quotes, when you look, are all fairly close to each other in the Torah, in the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible. So, you know, he, he might be quoting from this morning's Bible reading, for all we know. You know they're, they're kind of close together. So Jesus clearly submits himself to God's word. He is, he is tempted to miraculously provide for his own needs. And he says, I won't do it because God's word said... I won't live by bread alone. I'll live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's tempted to make this big dramatic show of his own power and authority to convince people to follow him. And he says, I, I, I won't do it. So Jesus submits himself to God's word. He chooses to do that. And throughout his ministry, you know, you've got this crazy thing that on the one hand, he completely transcends and runs a cart and horses through the interpretation of the law of his generation. And yet he never 
ceases to be submitted to it. He never ceases to love God's law. Jesus is Psalm 119. You know, that incredible, very, 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 very long psalm of how much I love God's word, I love God's law. And yet it isn't about dreary, let's dissect the words and submit to them. It's saying God's word is life. Anyway, I'm getting carried away. So Jesus submits to God's word. Jesus submits himself to God's spirit. Do you ever notice he goes 30 years without really performing miracles, without really doing anything desperately dramatic, without becoming a public figure. And then he goes to John in the Jordan, submits himself to be baptized by his cousin, who, and his cousin is saying, look, come on, I don't need to baptize you, you need to baptize me. John's a prophet, John knows exactly what's going on. But Jesus says, no, I'm going to submit myself to this. Um, and when he does, God's spirit comes upon him. And it is only when the Spirit of God comes upon him that Jesus starts his time of public ministry. And isn't it amazing? Jesus changed the world in just three years of ministry. I used to think three years was a long time. At my age, I no longer think three years is a long time. You know, I'm, Jesus had died and risen long before he reached the age that I'm at now. This, this was not a long time. And somehow coming... As, as he is filled with God's spirit, as God's spirit comes upon him. And, you know, Jesus said, I, I, I don't act on my own. I only do what I see the Father doing. How did he see what the Father doing? He saw it because the spirit of God, which is part of the Godhead, which is part of the Trinity, which is truly God in and of himself, he saw what the Father was doing because the spirit of God was upon him. You know, what did he say straight after the event? The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So Jesus saw his whole ministry as a response and a submission to the spirit of God, who is the Father, who is the Trinity, acting through him and he submitted himself to God's people this is quite surprising isn't it what did Jesus do for the first 30 years of his for the first certainly 12 years of his life and maybe 16 years of his life basically he submitted to his parents the gospels don't tell us a lot interestingly what it does tell us is that Jesus went Jesus went back to his home and his, to his parents and was obedient to them he submitted himself to, to human authority to to his earthly parents, maybe partly in submission to what it says in God's word. But the fact was, he was submitted to human beings. I mean, how bizarre is that? God himself is submitted to human beings. I mean, how many of you who are parents feel that you are entirely worth submitting to under all circumstances? You know, yeah, okay, there's a few in here who've got that kind of confidence. But, um, you know, I, my mum sometimes says, yeah, the, 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 role, the role of parents is to mess up the kids. <laughs> And we all do it in our different ways. But th the fact is, God himself, very God, she doesn't actually say mess. Um, yes. <laughs> Ollie knows. <laughs> it submitted himself to human parents. It, more surprisingly, when you read the Gospels, he continued to submit himself to the traditions of the elders. He, he would constantly go to the Pharisees and say, you've got this wrong. You've got that wrong. That's not how, what the law is supposed to be. That's not how you submit to God's word. But the fact was there were plenty of occasions when he submitted himself to the, to the teaching that had been passed down, all of the human expansion and opening up and interpreting of God's law. Jesus submitted himself to that stuff. You know, but... People read Jesus' teaching on divorce and see it, you know, it's very controversial because it's a controversial subject. But in fact, when you, really, when you read that passage, what Jesus was primarily doing is he was speaking right into the heart of a debate that was very controversial in his generation. 
So the, the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel were the two primary, primary rabbinic schools. How should we interpret and apply God's law day to day that were, were current in Jesus' generation? And in fact, that, that kind of conflict and how it was resolved is foundational to how modern Judaism works. And J Jesus speaks into the heart of this situation. Someone comes and asks him the question, it, it, is it okay that a man can divorce his wife for any or every reason? Hillel said you could divorce your wife for any or every reason, including that they burnt the dinner. Um, but, but basically it was just a right that men had. Shammai said that this is totally not true. This is a covenant that God has made. And the only reason you can, breach, you can break a covenant is for breach of covenant. So basically unfaithfulness was the only reason that Shammai and Jesus basically goes and said Shammai's right this is a covenant and only a breach of that covenant is sufficient grounds for breaking it it's not just any reason you fancy it you know when the guy's in a bad mood he's, he's got this, this right to do it so so Jesus is not primarily trying to set out doctrines of his own he is saying there is teaching out there and some of this teaching is good and brings life and some of it isn't and I, you should submit yourself to the teaching that brings life. So, I mean, the, we can go into that subject another time if people want to, but the main point is this. Jesus was very clearly looking to the rabbinic teaching of his... He didn't have time to expand the whole of the, the, the law of God in three years, and he was saying there is a rich source of tradition here, and some of this is correct, and you should follow it, and you should submit yourselves to it. So three ways, in really practical ways, in which Jesus submitted himself to his Father's will. So how can I do the same? So Jesus submits to God's word. How can I submit to God's word? Well, I mean, first really practical point, okay, you can't submit something you've never read. Um, I, I think we're in a type of church and probably in a stage of, of, Chris, of sort of how Christianity is in society that, you know, we kind of don't like loading loads of rules on people and we kind of don't like loading principles on people and saying you've got to do this and you've got to do that and you've got to do that. And, you know, when I was growing up, I guess the idea that you would read your Bible every single day and you'd have a quiet time where you read your Bible and pray, that, that, you know, people would pick you up on that. I don't really hear us picking ourselves up on that to the same degree. And yet the fact is you can't submit to something that you've never read. Um, and actually you can't really expect God to speak to you supernaturally if you're not taking in any way seriously the ways in which he has already spoken. The great advantage of Rob's Bible is you can wave it. There's no point waving an iPhone. Um, but Rob can kind of wave. You can even thump it, couldn't you? I mean, just look at the many things you can do with that. You can't do with an iPhone. You're not going to break the screen on that, are you? Um, so actually, are, are you reading the Bible? You, you know, it, it, here's a really good question. Ha, have you ever actually read every word in the Bible? Um, I'll just put that one out there. Sally's doing Bible in a year. At least by the end of Bible in a year, you will have read every word in the Bible. Um, if you've never done that, I would really commend it. I, I commute, I've done Bible in the year loads of times on the train because it's a really good time of using the time. I've done it cassettes in the car. Um, you, you know, you can't submit to it if you've never read to it. Ad actually, just reading it isn't enough. You need to feed on it. Um, med meditation's kind of, you know, big subject at the moment. Everyone talks about it. Suddenly it's in vogue. Um, Bible talks a lot about meditation. And Christian meditation is this. It's to to chew on it. You know, the word is sometimes almost like a cow chews the cud. It kind of brings it up from stomach number one, which is the starting stomach. I've just got it in there. It gives it another chew, gets some more goodness out of it, passes it back to stomach two, which is the kind of processing and energy extraction stomach. That's what biblical meditation is. It's feeding on God's word. It's building yourself up on it. And 
but maybe the real test of submission. And, you know, whatever degree God has given you intellect, submit the whole of the intellect that God has given you to reading God's word. Um, I was doing the mustard seed discipleship thing with a guy last year who was dyslexic. Really found reading not a great source of life to him. So we found loads of other ways in which you can submit yourself to God's word and be discipled without having to read loads of words. But, I mean, Holly loves reading words. You know, she did a history degree. You can't really take on a history degree without reading lots of words. You know, there are other people out here who actually, you know, we enjoy studying stuff. So use the whole extent of what God's given you, recognizing that God can enable you to meditate on his word as an illiterate shepherd out in a field or as the greatest intellect who spends the whole of your life learning. And still, his word will dwell richly within you at the end of that process. But whatever that, that scriptural meditation looks like, whatever you're bringing to that party, you know, do it wholeheartedly. And Jesus actually says, you know, there are several places in the gospel where he says the real distinction about those who submit to my word is not those who know it or have heard it, but those who put it into practice. You know, the, I think the, the, parable, the, um, the parable of the house on the rock and the sands, Jesus describes the builder on the rock as those who hear my word and put it into practice are, is, is like this. Um, he describes the parable of the sower, I think he says, that those who, who hear the word and put it into practice are the ones who receive a harvest. Um, the, the parable of the, 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 the two sons, they both hear what the father says. They react differently, but actually the one who's commended is the one who puts it into practice. So we are called to put it into practice, and that actually is the ultimate act of submission, isn't it? You can, I, I suppose it starts in your mind. If you're not submitted to it intellectually, you will never submit to it in practice but actually you can still intellectually assent to something that you don't live by and don't do. So to really submit to God's word, you do have to read it. You do have to meditate, chew on it, feed on it. And then once you've got to that place of understanding it, you do have to put it into practice. You have to do it. And sometimes that's hard. And sometimes you have to do it from a place of not fully understanding. You can say, I understand the implications of this, but actually I'm not doesn't sit well with me I'm not sure I really get it I haven't got it all worked out I just don't fully understand it even actually sometimes you've still got to start submitting to it you've got to say I will I will choose to do this not because I fully understand it and I've got it worked out and I have this perfectly worked out intellectual theology in my mind that is going to work out in every situation I'm going to submit as an act of brave and submissive faith I'm going to put myself under God's word even though I don't yet fully get it and maybe sometimes starting to submit, and it is the key to getting it. And Jesus was submitted to God's Spirit, wasn't he? He only did what the Father was doing, and he only, he only got that by seeing it in the Spirit. Um, just like we, we, we can't submit to God's Word unless we've read it, we can't submit to God's Spirit unless we are filled with God's Spirit. Again, so, some of us have been through sort of Pentecostal or charismatic backgrounds. Where, where there was an everyday expectation that people would be filled with the Spirit of God and that would be quite a specific, identifiable experience. You know, you, you would go and you'd be prayed for and you'd be filled with the Spirit and clear signs that that person was filled with the Spirit would accompany that. Um, I guess as I've grown older, I've genuinely known people who would never claim to have had that dramatic one-off experience, but nonetheless, there is clear evidence that their lives are filled with the Spirit. Um, but I think just saying, oh, because you're a Christian, you must be filled with the, 
you're filled with the Spirit and just relying on a theological acknowledgement that this is what Jesus says is it must be true. I believe that's, that's how we can come in complete confidence that we are to be filled with the Spirit. But that just knowing that thing in itself doesn't mean that you are filled with the Spirit. You, it still has to be an actual thing. It still actually has to happen somehow or another. And to those of us who have had that experience in the past, whether that's a, a very dramatic experience or quite a gentle sort of rising tide type experience of being filled, whatever your experience, the Bible says, when the Bible says go on being filled with the Spirit, the tense is very clear that it is a continuous ongoing thing. You have to carry on being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is a daily experience. It's not something that happens once in your life and you've ticked the box. Um, you know, to some extent, baptism in water is something that you do once, and it does change things, and you can always look back on that. Baptism in the Spirit, that can, for, for very many people, there is a first occasion when they would say, that is the time I was, I was baptized in the Spirit. And actually, I don't think it's wrong to ask for that. And if you never had that experience, I don't think it's wrong to say, God, I want that experience. But even once you've had that, there is still this very clear scripture that says, go on being filled with the Spirit. Baptism with the Spirit is a day-to-day -day experience. So we need to ask to be filled with the Spirit. And, you know, we need to discern for ourselves, am I filled with the Spirit? Because you can't submit to it if, you know, if you, and the, you and God's Spirit, if there's a big gap, ain't going to happen. Um, you've got to practice hearing the Spirit. Even when you are filled with the Spirit, you're learning to discern God's voice in a different way. Just like... The whole thing of meditating and studying scripture is key to understanding what you've read. You have to learn to hear the voice of God. And again, there's a very clear promise. It can happen. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. So it's not, I couldn't possibly do this, but there is still a spiritual discipline of practicing hearing the voice of the Spirit. And, you know, we're called to test it as well. You think, I really think that thing might well be from God. You know, does it align against God's word? Does it align against... Um, the wisdom of others have I had confirmation of it in more than one way there's some really practical tests you can do we need to learn how to hear the spirit of God and just as again you need to put God's words into practice we, we are told to keep in step with the spirit aren't we you know it's very easy to do a Jonah to hear clearly and accurately what God's saying and then to do something else either because I'm just too scared and I'm running away or more normally because I do some really clever rationalization in my own mind that says well I probably shouldn't do that just yet because I haven't had enough confirmation or maybe the time isn't right or maybe that person wouldn't receive it in the right way so I need to write for the right opportunity or the right moment before I do it or that sort of thing we say stuff like that don't we Actually, to keep in step with the Spirit means doing what the Spirit is saying when the Spirit is saying it. That's what in step is, isn't it? They move, you move. When you see soldiers marching in formation, they are all in step and they all move together. You don't have one who moves off and then later on the others kind of follow on. And the, the Holy Spirit keeps moving. That's <coughs> fundamental to the nature of the Holy Spirit. Always moving, always moving on. Like the wind goes from here to there, like the wild goose crossing across the sky. There and gone. We have to keep in step with the Spirit. Lisa talks about little promptings sometimes. These things you think you've heard from God. And you don't really understand the implications of it. And it doesn't sound like a big deal. You know, she had one give this thing to that person. Give them this little gift. And she, she felt it was one of these little promptings from God. And like, she didn't know what, effect that was going to have on that person she didn't even know if she'd heard it right but actually she chose to keep in step with the spirit and that opened up a whole load of stuff this happens to you quite a lot in fact um because she keeps in step with the spirit does what the spirit's saying got to move on um submitting to god's people 
this is the one we're all really going to struggle to get, right? Because we live in an age where the primary philosophy of our age, the one thing that you are told to do, um, starting at about age of two when they show you your first Disney film, and in every bit of our culture thereafter, is to be your own person, do your own thing, follow your own dream, follow your own heart, um, love yourself you know, first of all, first and foremost. Don't let anyone else tell you what to do. Don't let them um, you know, constrain your life, tell you what direction you should follow, set your path out for you. That is the predominant message of our age, isn't it? You see it in our economic system, it's called consumer choice. The primary things that drives our modern economics is consumer choice. You see it in our philosophies. It's all about this philosophy of self-actualization. You know, be yourself, find your own happiness, build your own life, that sort of thing. So an attitude that we might submit ourselves to another person or another person's wisdom or another person's ideas is completely countercultural in our culture. And yet, it is written right through the whole history of Christianity. That is always how God's people have been. And the Bible says, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ, doesn't it? So do you want to reverence Christ? Because if you do, you have to start submitting yourselves to one another. And that means you not just listen to one another, not just give them the time of day and then make your own judgment as to whether they're talking sense or not. It's submit yourselves to one another actually place yourselves under their authority why out of reverence for christ because doing that can in some circumstances be part of this chain of command thing that means that you are under that person's authority they are under christ's authority just like paul said follow me as i follow christ i am under his authority therefore you can safely put yourself under my authority and you will be in that same chain of authority that means you will move in my authority it's what discipleship is isn't it Jesus didn't just say, be my disciples. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. And just as his disciples were under his authority, the disciples that we make, to some degree, will be under our authority. And if you noticed, I'm being cagey about this, where I wasn't cagey about the other ones. It's because it's so countercultural in our society. But bottom line is this. You are expected to submit to other Christians and to do stuff, not because you think it's right or you think it's good, but because they've said it and you submit to them out of reverence to Christ. That's how it's supposed to be. That's hard. I wonder, because that one's so hard, is it one of the keys to our missing authority that we're struggling with? Um, we need to recognize that the wisdom of Christ can be revealed in others. Um, you know, the body of Christ, okay? When you have a financial need, what's the primary way that God will meet it? Through the body of Christ. Um, when, you, when you have a need to hear God's word and, you know, you need God to speak, what's the primary way that God will meet it? He'll meet it through the body of Christ. When you need encouragement and you're feeling down, well, what's the primary way that God will meet it? He'll do it through the body of Christ. You, you know, Jesus takes this love for one another thing so seriously that he's willing for stuff to not happen unless it happens through the body of Christ. So when we need to receive wisdom and when we need the kind of wisdom that is going to guide our lives, is going to set our direction, is going to put us under God's authority in order that his authority might be released in us and through us, how's he going to do it? Through the body of Christ, right, yes. So we need to recognize that the wisdom of Christ can and will be revealed in others. And in fact, in many cases, God won't have a plan B. Unless you put yourself under that kind of authority, it just ain't going to happen at all. Incredibly scary, isn't it? You're all thinking spiritual abuse and scandals and um, that doesn't sit right with me. And what about it? But it's right there in God's words. I haven't got the answer. I'm just putting this out there, all right? And Jesus chose to do it. He was God and he chose to obey his parents. You can choose to be a disciple. 
you know, by this will all men know that you're my disciples. Jesus called disciples to him. It was his primary way of, of bringing the kingdom of God on earth. And he said, go and make disciples of all nations. And they all knew what a disciple was meant. A disciple was a disciple of a teacher and they obeyed their teaching. A disciple was a disciple of a master and they obeyed the master's word. So when Jesus says, go make disciples, there is no other possible interpretation given what every single person hearing him understood a, a disciple to be, that this is what he means. So we are called to be in this glorious, just like the Roman centurion got. He wasn't the bottom of the chain. He wasn't the top of the chain. But he understood that by, by, by being in that chain of authority, um, he released the authority of the Roman Empire on the earth. And maybe there's something in there. And maybe we need to make this radical choice to be a disciple. And to be a disciple of Jesus, of course, yes, to test wisdom in the same way as we would test what the Spirit's saying, we would test our interpretation of God's word, but just as we are under those other types of authority to be under this authority as well. So, we, look, we looked a bit about faith and authority, this idea of being submitted in authority to exercise an authority. The fact that understanding and recognizing that in itself constitutes faith and the centurion kind of got it. We looked at the fact that we are ambassadors. We are under Christ's authority, therefore we exercise his authority in the situation that we're in. We looked at how did Jesus do this submission to authority thing and how did he submit to, to his father because that has to be our primary example. And we looked at submitting ourselves to God's word, submitting ourselves to God's spirit, submitting ourselves to God's people as um, a means of doing that. This is, this is a scripture that God's been speaking to me so much in over the last year, and I'll finish on this. Just because it's got yet another one of these flipping verses in it that just are bugging me. And unless I do something about starting to live this, it's really going to get to me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And I want to move in that kind of authority in the world. And I know that it involves me remaining in Christ and his words remaining in me. You can see that kind of up and down thing going on there, can't we? I want to be under his authority and I want his authority to be released in and through me. And that, that's how that whatever you wish thing comes about. Because once my wishes, my will, are truly submitted to Christ's authority, that's how it will become the case that everything I wish will be done for me because my every last wish my every last will is submitted to Christ and out of that his kingdom will come and his will will be done amen